I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's, Let's go. go. What's up, Mahalia? Mahalia snatched into, looks like a bloom. That's what I comes to mind, bloom. Yeah, it's like a plant, a beautiful plant. And you know, I have been applying all that I've learned from you to my son's 4C hair. Yes. Uh, so um, what we realized is that if we if we do our twists and then let, allow them to completely dry, you know, that makes a big difference. And there was a day that he was getting ready to go to church mm-hmm. and he's like, I'm not going to church with these twists in my head. I'm like, son, rock your Afrocentric twist. It didn't work as well as it worked with you. He, he was like, no. <laughs> It, it takes time. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in a twist out situation with, with, uh, Jules here, but <laughs> you know, Jules and her gray, you know, she's still, she's still rocking on. And I already told you that this gray is a whole different texture than the rest of my hair. So man, it's just a work in progress is. Yes. In addition to all that you've learned and put into your son's hair, <laughs> anything else you, uh, you came across this week that you found interesting? You know what? Um, I, I really did learn something this week. I know you're going to be so proud of me. Um, <laughs> I, th- this week, I, I read about something called the r naught, which is how infectious diseases spread. So it's a mathematical term that, it, that describes how for any given infection, how it spreads in an unvaccinated or vulnerable community. So mm. yeah, so it's like an R with like a zero. It's like not like naughty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not, not like not, but the R not, for example, if you have an R not of one, that means for every one person infected, if they step into a vulnerable population of uh, non-immune and non-vaccinated people, they will infect one person and then that will infect one person and so on. So the original um, SARS-CoV-2 um, or COVID-19 that we saw originally had an R not of 2.5. Mm-hmm. So every one person who got COVID-19, they infected 2.5 vulnerable people. And then those 2.5 went on to infect others. This is significant because um, now that we are seeing the Delta variant, the Delta variant is more contagious and the R naught is between about five and seven. I've been telling my patients that's around six, like around six. So for every one person who steps into a vulnerable population, they're going to infect six vulnerable people and those six will infect six more and so on and so on. What happens is the R not gets higher. The percentage of people immune you need to achieve herd immunity gets higher as well. And then the other thing, cause I was just all the way nerding out talking <laughs> about this this week is that I think it's helpful to put it in the context of of an infectious disease that everybody knows about, particularly people of a certain age. And that would be chickenpox or varicella, right? Yeah. The R naught for chickenpox is eight. What that means is like, we all remember at least those who are my age, actually, Ash, um, to age myself back in the day, if your little cousin got chickenpox and it was like 
15 other little cousins around the same age and they hadn't had it. They would just put y'all all together, let you put it together. And because it was so highly contagious, you can guarantee that everybody was going to get it and get it over with. So that, this is what the aunties did back in the day. So um, eventually, right, you're immune or like now you get a vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what this means to people who are still deliberating about being vaccinated is if you're dealing with an infection that has an R naught of six, it is not if you're going to get it. It is when you are going to get it. And the problem is that if you get it, who is to say that you will be one of the people to shake it, right? And I find that instead of waving my finger at people and just saying, it's more contagious because I said so, or um, you need to do this because I said so, I think our patients, our community, they really appreciate it when you take a minute to break down what do we mean by more infectious? Yes. What does that mean to me? Um, what, what exactly is different about this Delta variant other than um, y'all naming it something else and trying to scare us? So this weekend, I was out and about in Atlanta, Georgia. And let me tell you what is not happening here. And that is a lockdown of people staying in the house. Mm. People are in these streets more than Sesame. Do you hear me? <laughs> Girl... They are tired and they want to see each other and they are in groups. In India, as I told my patient, they completely locked everything down. Mm. Just like our numbers went down when, when we locked down, right? Right. The combination of Delta variant plus, you know, people in the club. No. <laughs> yeah. And this just exemplifies how much I love patient care. I love patient education and respecting my patients enough to have these conversations about what's going on. For me, my mind has been mostly weighted towards some of the, you know, the the news that unfolded over the weekend and then particularly with the earthquake in Haiti and also with the events happening in Afghanistan. I've had Barack Obama's memoir for a while, the, the latest one, and I actually just picked it back up. And it's interesting getting to hear him talk candidly about his personal experience and his thoughts going into the presidency on foreign relations, particularly in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, I just, I feel all the weights of these decisions and, and particularly for the veterans who gave up so much of their lives and mental health and well-being, the work that they they put in overseas and, you know, what must be going through everybody's mind. And also just to be able to wake up this morning without fear and to be able to go outside. And, you know, it's just, I've been in a very reflective state lately. Like you, I've just been consuming a lot of podcasts and news and interviews and listening to particularly women in Afghanistan talking. And I'm like, these women are dope. They're so Mm -hmm. intelligent. They're so amazing. And one woman in particular has daughters and she's just like, I mean, I'm just hurting for my daughters. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good thing to sort of center yourself on. Mm. Well, On that note. (laughs) (laughs) What, my friend, is the what today? The what is disorientation. You know, for folks who are listening and are really hoping that I will stop telling stories about my grandmother, I apologize (laughs) in advance. You should probably just unsubscribe from this podcast. (laughs) Uh-oh. We're here for all things Shelly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
So, you know, I, I want to share a little bit about the, the, the time period when she first went into the hospital. Okay. You know, it started on a actually really beautiful Saturday morning. I was at my mother's house in our backyard. She had made me this amazing breakfast. And so we were outside just having like a, a total like mother-daughter bonding moment. And mm-hmm. it was really great. And that was exactly around the time that my, my grandfather called. I would like for you and, um, and Ashley to, to, to come over right away. This is what he was telling my mom. You know, knowing my granddad, like that could, that could mean anything from right. and nine times out of 10, it's a non-emergency. <laughs> we have extra biscuit. <laughs> exactly. Like, come see this new thing I bought from Amazon. Like, you know, kind of taking our time, starting to head over there. I'd actually like packed up my stuff because I was going to stay at my grandparents for the rest of my trip. Then got another call while driving over there. My, talking about my grandmother. It's like, she doesn't look well. Like her blood pressure is really high. I called an ambulance. Mm. You know, I could see my mom gripping the steering wheel. And like, in my mind, I'm just, you know, this is, I'm sure this is overblown. I'm sure it's right. fine. Right. I remember pulling onto their street and they live like at the end of this cul-de-sac and seeing an ambulance sitting at the end of the street. In my mind, I'm just like, why, why is the EMS here? Why is there an ambulance here? And then we parked and I see the two EMTs like running from the house to grab the stretcher. And in my mind, I'm just like, what are they running for? Like, mm. why are they grabbing a stretcher? Mm. I was just so out of sorts. Mm. Of course, like walk in the house. I see my grandmother. I remember immediately running up to her and I was like on my knees staring up at her, her face because she was kind of slumped over. Mm. And I could see the right gaze deviation and like, Mm. you know, what was happening, Mm. you know, seeing that, seeing my mom and like, it just kind of like snapped me back into a doctor mode. And so we got her on the stretcher. I was in the EMS or in the ambulance, you know, we, we get to the hospital. There's only one family member allowed at a time. And so I was just the one who was there the whole time. And I'm wearing these like bright blue athletic shorts that like barely cover my ass. Like I'm wearing a, a tank top and a Black Lives Matter mask in this like suburban Houston hospital. And a lot of the nursing staff are wearing, you know, thin blue line t-shirts. Wow. wow. You know, it was just kind of, again, like what is happening? I was terrified, but also like very much kind of in shock. Mm. You know, it was just kind of the beginning of this, this process of, I remember sitting on the floor of the hospital by myself, freezing, but also not even like aware that I was so cold and being just so like, how, what, what just happened? Mm. And um, coming back to the hospital the next day, I remember the smell and like the sensory experience of like mm. having to sign in mm. and have like my picture taken and go up to, you know, the ICU and like walking down the hallway and knowing that like in one of these rooms is someone that I love. And I say all this to kind of like culminate into this one experience that I had, Um, you know, this is after like really devastating setbacks and kind of like with my grandmother in the ICU on a ventilator. And um, I was just there kind of staring out the window. It was like a really nice day. And one of the hospital medicine 
folks came through who had been kind of following the case for a while. She looked at me, she's like, oh, so what are you going to do for the rest of the day? Asking me like what my, what my weekend plans were. Do you have any idea that this is like literally the worst week of my life? I lost 10 pounds in seven days. Like I haven't been sleeping, you know, recognizing that this is obviously, you know, I, I don't think that so characteristic or like, you know, someone being completely obtuse or malicious, but it just reminded me so much of how we often miss that a normal day of work for us is like, in many cases, the worst days of not for, not just our patients, but their families, Mm. families being so disoriented and Mm. how we kind of structure our day where we just kind of like come in, you know, six, seven team members deep bust into a room and like Mm -hmm. maybe talk to the patient or just talk outside the room. Mm -hmm. And I remember so many times as a resident, I will be the first to admit how, how unexcited I was to get the page from the nurse that, you know, families at the bedside, it's 5 PM. I'm trying to get out the door. (laughs) Yeah. Just the importance of seeing both patients and families recognizing where they're at And and meeting them with the the language and the intention that recognizes like we are at two very different places, but I'm going to try to like maybe step into your space a little bit and try to help you stay grounded. Yeah. Because there were so many times in that experience that I thought I was going to lose it. You know, the the hardest part of that experience was by far like being in the hospital. Mm, Wow. You know, what that makes me think about is how as, as we grow older, we, we experience more stuff mm-hmm. and with your experiences comes a wisdom um, that lucky us, we get to apply to the work that we do. As I, as I listen to all of this, I, I know for certain that if you are dealing with anybody in an inpatient setting, this piece of your lived experience is likely um, to, to come through in the way and the tenderness that you offer to another person. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember um, when, when my sister Deanna passed away, for whatever reason, I was sort of overcome with, with this cool that night. Um, I was, it was a, it was a out of body experience where I sort of knew I I was a person who was calm and I was like, okay, we're going to do this. Okay. Call this person. Okay. Do this. But, but the piece that I remember um, in terms of feeling disoriented was once the coroner left with her body, Mm. Um, and that was hard, but I work in a hospital. I've seen people in body bags before. I, I was terrible to see, but, but even that, um, was okay. It was when I got in my car and tried to drive home from her house because my sister lived alone. And I knew that there really wouldn't be other than getting her stuff out of her house. I wouldn't be going there to see her anymore. I was leaving mm-hmm. her house where she would not be anymore. And I had been to my sister's house a bazillion times but, but I got lost. I was, I was very, very lost. And I had to call my brother who had to give me like turn by turn directions Wow, home because I was just so disoriented and fast forward that to when, when, when we pronounce patients in the hospital um, and their loved ones are there, right. Watching people leave for the first time. I, now I know how disorienting that is. Mm. And so I often will walk somebody out of the hospital. I'll get on the elevator with them. I'll ride down the elevator with them and walk them outside of the hospital because I'm like, this person is about to get lost in this hospital. Yeah. 
They are not going to know where to go. They're not going to know left from right, from up, from down. So when you said you pulled on the street and saw this ambulance in your, at your grandmama's house, you're like, what is going on? (laughs) You know? um, Yeah. Like my brain, like, like just, it would not comprehend what was happening literally until I was in the back of the ambulance with her. Like I just could not really wrap my mind around it. And then think about all the times we've been that hospitalist, right? Where we, 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 we have, even if it's not through words, like what you're going to do this weekend, it could also be through a gesture. Like sometimes I think about things like, you know, when somebody walks into a patient's room and their hair is wet in ringlets or something and mm-hmm. because they wanted to work out before they came and rounded on your loved one. And these things that, that's, that signal to them that you just, this is just a a speed breaker in whatever it is you're trying to do or holding a cup of coffee or walking in chewing. There are these little things that I know as a resident when I was tired and I was just so, you know, caught up on me. If if this is the worst day of your life, something like a doctor chewing when they walk in your room or one doctor standing to the side, scrolling their phone and you see the blue that looks like Facebook. (laughs) You will never, ever forget that. You will not. You'll be like, man, that was cold. Mm-hmm. Don't you know that the world just stopped? Mm-hmm. What, what, what is wrong with you? You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how has that changed you? What do you, what do you do differently now? Well, I became a primary care provider. <laughs> I never go in the hospital again. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it just, I try to do my best even in the outpatient setting to really try to have a broader lens into someone's lived experience. And that includes like, who are the people in their circle that, that care for them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my patients are are isolated and I, 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 I hold space for that as well. But one thing that has changed for me in particular, because, you know, my, the, the folks that I see in the outpatient setting, like they skew, you know, older than me. Mm-hmm. And so for, for folks who are just coming into a time in their life where they're starting to realize like, you know, my body's not what it used to be. Like, you know, I can't do what I used to do or kind of actualizing, like, you know, this is what aging looks like. That's, that's a life altering experience as well. And I have to recognize like, just because that might not be my lived experience right now. Right. right. Um, even though my hips hurt occasionally <laughs> and my knees have started to crack. You know, I have never been in chronic pain, trying to negotiate with with doctors and pharmacists why I need something stronger. Yep. I have never had to come to get labs every month. And so, you know, even if it's not the same as losing a loved one, you are losing a part of yourself that you once knew to be true. Yeah. And so holding space for that, even though it might not feel like that big a deal for me, Mm -hmm. um, that is a big deal for someone. And so it's just, again, these kind of pump the brink moments for me when I feel myself getting irritated or pressed for time to try to recognize just because this is where I'm at. Like, I also have to hold space for where this person is at as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I think age helps you learn how to do that better. You know? <laughs> I, I really do. I think you just have to live and you realize like, oh my gosh, that was not cool. <laughs> Today I cracked a joke on Twitter that, um, you know, for every patient that I made, it seem like it wasn't a big deal that your diuretic causes you to go back and forth to the bathroom. And for every patient that I kind of gave a tiny eye roll at who didn't want to take their diuretic before getting on the bus, I'm sorry because- I was in and out of the bathroom today. Thank you, HCTZ and essential hypertension. Thank you, genetics. Yeah. yeah. So a colleague of mine shared this poem with me after um, another one of our colleagues, unfortunately, had, had lost her husband. And it, and it, and it got me thinking um, in this poem. And shoot, I hope I can figure out who it's by. But it is called Funeral Blues. Um, and allow me to read it to you. Yes, please. Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone, silence the pianos and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let airplanes circle moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky, the message he is dead. Put crepe bows round the white necks of public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out everyone. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood for nothing now can ever come to any good. W.H. Auden, I think is the, the author. And, and, and some might think what a depressing poem, but, but what it means is my world has stopped. My world has stopped. And this description of all of this ordinary happening around, right? And kind of like that disorienting thing, what are you doing? What do you mean? What am I getting ready to do? No, stop everything. Nothing's good. And, and we know that with time, things get better. Mm-hmm. But our patients, ever since um, that poem was shared with me, I, I reflect on it, I pull it up, and I, and I center on it to think about, th- this is where this patient's loved one is right now. So if I come in here swirling a tepid cup of coffee, right, or if I come in chewing a wad of bubble gum, or doing anything that looks extremely ordinary, it's kind of like not cool. I almost want to slow all my body movements. I want to, I want to bring my voice down. I, I want to join you in your fellowship of suffering. Even if I didn't know your loved one, like you did, I want to metaphorically try to do what this person was asking. Stop everything. Wear the black gloves, tie, tie bows around the necks of the doves. Um, and, and I'm not saying I always did that, but, but growing older, and experiencing loss and tragedy, I, I think is one of the things that helped me to see that more. And it'd be like this, look, you better get, you better get your mind right before you go in here with these folks. Cause they will remember this. They will. Amen. Girl. Girl. Shout out to my, my colleague, Richard Pittman, my office mate down two doors down for me for sharing um, that poem with me. I love that I work with people who, care about the humanities and how it helps us to be better doctors. 
that's so real yeah. and sis you always know the right words to to bring it all together yeah but you know i am fighting with all my might to not start crying and like normally you know i'm the crier and i was like i am not gonna be sitting up here crying by her granny again when she ain't crying i am not i'm not crying by myself with you no more ashley that's a lie i am gonna cry by myself but but today i'm not hey yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, the thing is I do my crying beforehand. So I'm going to, I'm going to save you some tears next time so we can do it in oh, solidarity. Okay. Okay. But you know, I'll cry for both of us <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I have no problem doing that. So uh, to anybody who was ever told that it's unprofessional to cry, tell that person to kick rocks. Mm-hmm. Tell them I said kick rocks and I'm a professor. <laughs> Sis, I love talking to you and I look forward to, to catching up with you next time. Michelle, and I love you. And um, I know your grandmother always told you how proud she was of you, but today I'm telling you, I'm proud of you too. Thank you, sis. Right. I love you too. All right. Bye. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production. Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and The Clinical Problem Solvers, our med Twitter fam. And especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.